You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Good morning, Axis. Um, it's a joy to be here. My name is Don. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I usually don't bring my phone, but Pastor Derek and Pastor Jeremy are always praying for me, especially when I'm preaching. And so I'm going to share the prayer they sent me right around 6 o'clock this morning. And a hearty amen was, was found from Pastor Derek. And so I'm going to just start with that. So pray with me over these words that your two pastors seated here this morning sent me right after the sun had come up. May the God of all comfort be with everyone who hears the word. And may all who hear it truly hear and understand it. May he, Jesus Christ, through his spirit, open eyes, minds, and hearts through the words that he will give today. Holy Spirit, move mightily among us and within us all. Empower these words powerfully to work within our body. May we all see and know and believe and follow you, Jesus, as we lift our eyes from the weight of our sin. Lift them up. Lift our eyes to gaze upon the glory of your face and experience the warmth of your grace. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning, we have a short, rather short um, phrase here, but with so much compacted in it that I wanted to first congratulate you. I'm not sure what week this is. Jeremy might know, 34, 35. Uh, so you've made it 34, 35 weeks into the uh, Gospel of Mark, and it's at the halfway point. And so what we've come to today is what I call a turning point. It's a um, point where something changes, a lot of structure changes, uh, other dynamic things will change. We, we get that Jesus has been in Galilee and then he's been doing a lot of things and preaching and teaching and healing. Uh, but after this, this moment, this turning point, Jesus is on his way somewhere. And we get that very, very soon here in verse 27. He, along with his disciples, were on their way. Of course, they're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. But more than that, this becomes a turning point. And, and in my mind, it's always been a hinge. It's been a, a moment that Jesus is going to fix. The, a hinge is always fixed on one side so that the other may have direction. And so what we've arrived at in week 30-something, is a hinge in the book that, that what's going to happen, even in the journey, is going to intensify but be different. We, we see in this travel narrative, if, if we understand it, that Jesus has, has been in Galilee but now is headed to Jerusalem. So, so we see his movings. I have a map that will show kind of just look at all those crossings of the, of the Sea of Galilee. And that's just in the recent events. Like, if you've got your text open, I'll, I'll briefly show this. In 724, Jesus got up after speaking about hypocrisy 
with the disciples and with the Pharisees, got up and went away to the region of Tyre, which is on the Mediterranean Sea. That's in 724. In 731, he moves again from Tyre through the region of Sidon, near then back to the Sea of Galilee, to the Decapolis region. So he moves all the way down there. And, and if you notice, the, the ministry in Galilee is being skirted. He's moving into Gentile areas. He's moving where there'll be much more uh, Greco-Roman influence. And so the Jewish communities would be smaller. He then, if you look, moves to where we found him last week, Bethsaida. After going across to Dalmanutha and feeding the 4,000 and back to Bethsaida, where Pastor Jeremy preached for us last week on the healing of the blind man. We see that what we're going to see today is that he's going to travel from Bethsaida, and we've got another map that, that puts him into Caesarea Philippi and Mount Hermon, which I believe is where chapter 9 occurs, but that's debatable. And Caesarea Philippi is 25 miles or so north of the Sea of Galilee. So he's, he's journeying as we pick him up here, but I also want to show you part of this hinge because what we're going to find today is an anchor point in the questions he's asking the disciples. Time, space, and eternity are going to be projected off of this answer. So how you hear it will be an anchor that allows you to move in the direction that he is calling you. So at this hinge going forward, we see in 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, actually 9.30, that he'll come back from Caesarea Philippi on his way, but he tries to move through Galilee silently, like doesn't want the crowds to, to really see him. He, he, in 10.1, he, he actually says getting up from there, he moves to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. In other words, he crosses the Jordan uh, River, and we know that he went through Samaria. He's on his way down to Jerusalem. So he, at this point, at this hinge, he is setting his face firmly to move to Jerusalem. Uh, one more, 10.32, travel narrative. Then they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. So what we find is this bulk of material from really 822, where Pastor Jeremy had us last week, to 1052, which is right in Jericho after he heals Bartimaeus, is an intense part of Scripture where Jesus isn't doing miracles. Though in chapter 1 and even in chapter 7, we have these rather called summary statements where he's healing anybody who comes to him in Galilee. But suddenly, with the bookends of healing a man in a two-stage process of blindness that Pastor Jeremy walked us through, to one more miracle at the foot of Mount Hermon after he's been uh, transfigured, he, he will heal a, a man's son that the disciples couldn't until we get to Jericho. But what intensifies, though the miracles are fading, what intensifies is his teaching on the severity and the, the rigor of discipleship, of following him, of identifying who he really is and what it means to really follow him. Because I will contend today that, that we'll see, like the blind man, just partially getting a view of what he is. Because in their defense... Peter and the rest of the disciples had undergone years of a social narrative of who the expected Messiah would be. 
And so when Peter makes this great profession, there's this moment that we all know of, of great tension that we'll hear of next week where he rebukes Jesus for saying what he's going to say about his mission. And so if we as disciples are going to hear this moment, clearly we, we really must fix one edge of this on what we see today in Jesus' words. Not in a social discourse, not in, not in what the world thinks. Because even today, we could take a poll out there and you'd get all sorts of answers of who is Jesus. We need the accurate biblical definition as God's son, the Messiah. And so as we move to that, we'd see that the most immediate context would be these passages from 8, 17, 18, and then this healing of a man in two stages. The only place where we see a healing in two stages. And the immediate context is he'd been speaking to them as they're moving across the lake about bread. And he goes, in 17 and 18, why do you discuss this? Do you not remember what he just did with the bread feeding the 4,000? Do you have hard hearts? Do you have eyes but can't see? Do you have ears but can't hear? And it leads right into the passage that Pastor Jeremy spoke on last week. That there's this man that they bring to him and, and he can't see. And while Pastor Jeremy said, you know, what we, what we see here is a man that desperately needs a relationship with Jesus and, and Jesus will touch and heal him. That, that what Jesus wants him to do is experience him. I love that thought. Pastor Jeremy said he actually, the spit in the eyes, that the man could not see him, but he could feel it. That he could feel Jesus' immediate touch of the eyes. And that what we have in this two-stage miracle is exactly a man who is beginning to see and I think he gives an object lesson to the disciples of this is where you are. You see me maybe as Messiah, but your definition of that is wrong based on the culture and how you've been brought up. And, and I hate to say it, the question that you probably want me to ask is, who do you want me to be? Not who am I. Who do you want me to be? And that's not the question he's going to really ask them. In fact, Jeremy goes on and starts expounding the text and says, Jesus desired him, the blind man, to experience him fully. Not just intellectually, not emotionally, not momentarily, but relationally. Jesus desired that of this man. And that's the context that, that launches us into today when we begin to see that, that he desires him relationally. And notice, I love this, Pastor Jeremy goes... Notice Jesus did not leave the man halfway. He remained there, touched him again. And the text says he saw clearly. The, the Greek word there that I can't even pronounce, it, it means to see something at a distance, and I know it means 20-20, but it says clearly, almost like shiny, like putting a spotlight on it. You can see it very clearly. The man's eyes were perfect. And so we get that, that what the man needed was to press into Jesus and press on in his life. I love that we read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, how fitting that you see us running a race and you're not going to stop that race, but you're going to press on into it. And the greatest thing post-crucifixion, post-resurrection that I could give you as an example of somebody that understands this is in Philippians, where 
it's always been a mystery to me, but I'm starting to get it at this age where Paul says in verse 10, after he's told them in Philippi exactly all the accolades he had when he was a young man. I mean, he was spotless to the law. He, he was sinless. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisee, the Hebrew of the Hebrew, of the tribe of Benjamin, born on the eighth day. I mean, he, he had a resume that wouldn't quit. And he says, I count all that stuff as rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified. He sees what they don't see yet at Caesarea Philippi. That that's how I want to experience Jesus. That in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. Well, Paul, you know him. No, I want to experience him more and more every day by pressing in and pressing on, knowing that Jesus won't leave me halfway. That's what I need, he says. And in verse 10, he continues that I may experience in somehow the power of the resur- his resurrection and the fellowship to koinonia, to fellowship with his sufferings. And then, therefore, to be conformed in some manner in this life to his death. That is knowing and experiencing Jesus. In order that some way I, in some manner, attain the resurrection for myself. And not that I've already obtained that or become perfect, but one thing I do. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't think that I've already laid hold of that yet, but one thing I do, I forget everything that lies behind, and I press on reaching forward to grab hold of Jesus. That is a man who understands. A man who understands that Jesus came with this attitude and that we should have it too, that though Christ Jesus existed in the form of God, did not regard God and equality with him as a thing to be held onto, but emptied himself completely, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. He became, as a man, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's post-resurrection knowledge of Christ. Pressing in, identifying who he is, who he came for and as. But they don't have this yet. They don't have it. And so Jesus has given them an object lesson now that that they just need to hang on. And they journey the 25 miles. And it says in verse 27 that he begins to ask them. The Greek word there literally is in the imperfect tense. And it's it's not just ask. It's interrogated them. In other words, they're on the way. And I can see them moving up to Caesarea Philippi. And the mountain rises 9,200 feet behind the, the little city there. And as it does, he begins to ask them, who do people say that I am? The, the, the context physically is this, this Ro- Greco-Roman city with this grotto behind them and the mountain range rising. And they're headed to that grotto. They're headed to that grotto because for centuries it's been a place of pagan worship. You can read in Joshua 11, the first time I think it's mentioned. It's called Baal, G-A-D, Gad. Baal Gad. Lord of good fortune. Lord of luck. And people would go there and offer sacrifices, believing that the cave behind that one structure, and the structure wasn't there until the first century. We'll see some more pictures of this. That structure on your left 
wasn't there when the Canaanites were worshiping. And they would bring their worship and throw the, the offering into the cave, which was a source of the Jordan River, hoping for luck and fortune, for fertility. They believed that, that Baal retreated there in the winter and came out in the spring. If, if their offering was accepted. Otherwise, they'd have bad luck, ruin, ruin nation and, and poverty and famine. So they came here looking for that. But the city grew from 300 B.C. to about 400 A.D. 700 years, it became known as the place of Pan, a Greek god. A Greek god that is the lord of nature, the wilderness and shepherds. He's this half-goat, half-man figure. And in the cliffs are, are niches where they would set idols, gods. And, and once again, we see a couple of these pictures that, that on your left, Herod the Great had actually erected this temple to Caesar Augustus because we worshipped the Caesars. Because Caesar said he was divine, starting with Julius Caesar. So they offered, that's offering there to Augustus built right around the time it had only been like 30 years old when Jesus was there when it was finished. So brand new structure to the government, to the God who, who says he was the son of God, who brought peace in the world but by a sword, right? The next one would have been Zeus's temple. There had been places they called dancing goats over here on the right and altars. That at least They found at least 10 altars, six big structures, and thousands of pounds of, of pottery and glass where the offerings were made. And this would have been the place where Jesus is moving them for a specific reason to ask them pointed questions. And on the way there, he repeatedly asked, who do people say that I am? They begin to discuss it. They begin to say, well, well, some think you're John the Baptist. And that's understandable because we can get it in Mark 6. And again, in, in real pointedly in Luke 9 and Luke 23, where, where Herod Antipas, the, the man who was tetrarch over the Galilean region, had had John the Baptist killed. But now Jesus, this man whose message sounds just like John the Baptist, saying, repent, believe, turn back to God. He's drawing crowds just like John the Baptist did. People are going out. Maybe it's him. He didn't think it's reincarnation. He eerily thought he'd come back from the dead. And we get in Luke 9 that, that Herod was like, I, I, I kind of want to see him. And in my heart, I'm thinking, then why don't you press in and press on like the blind man and see him? Because I'm the king. Because I'm prideful. Because I don't do that. People come to see me. So he waits, and we get that in Luke 23, that when Pilate sends Jesus to him, he said he was glad to see him, and that then he interrogated him, Jesus, at length, question after question after question. And Jesus' response, he didn't say a word. Herod, it's too late. You could have gone to him at any time. You could have seen your great need and your sinfulness and gone. He, he beckoned everyone to come after him. 
If you read Luke 23, Herod turns so quickly to what the Greek word says. He treated him with contempt and worthlessness. Herod, if you just pressed in, you'd have, you'd have heard what Mark 1.8 says, that, that he's not John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You would have seen that. But people were saying, maybe he's John the Baptist. Others said he's Elijah. And naturally so, even from the Hebrew Scriptures. You can read Malachi 3.1 or Malachi 4.5, very much expecting before the great and terrible day of the Lord of when God would come back and be with his people that he would first send, he says, I will send Elijah before him. And if you were going to get that actually in 9 where Jesus addresses this pointedly because they'll ask him, why do people say that Elijah's coming back? But that was the belief at that time and writings around the first century add to the emphasis that what they thought of a book called Sirach, that, that Elijah would come and calm the wrath of the Lord and restore the 12 tribes together, sort of deflecting God's wrath from them so that it may be put fully on the Gentiles. And that was a messianic expectation. So, so maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's Jeremiah. And this is so pointed. I wanted to turn just a moment to Jeremiah. And I just listed a few things down. In chapter 4, Jeremiah calls the nation to repent and return to God. Sounds like Jesus. In chapter 7, he has an ongoing struggle with the religious authorities who are running the temple and their hypocrisy. Turn back one chapter and you'll see that in Mark 7. In chapter 9, Jeremiah weeps over the people. So much so as you're not sure whose voice it is. It's, it's probably God's, but it's through the prophet. Jesus weeps and mourns over those. He weeps and mourns over Herod Antipas, who sits in his throne and not comes and sees him. In chapter 20, he'll be rejected and arrested by the religious authorities. In chapter 31, he'll talk about a new covenant that's coming, that's going to be written on people's hearts. But in chapter 32, he'll be arrested again. In the subsequent chapters, Jeremiah will be placed in a, in a well, really, and left to die. I always find chapter 1 and hear these words over our Savior sometimes. This is spoken to Jeremiah, but hear the words that God is speaking to the prophet. Do not be dismayed. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be dismayed because I will make you as a fortified city. I'll make you as a pillar of iron, as a wall of bronze. Because you're going to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the land. But they will fight against you. But they will not overcome you. For I am with you to deliver you. God speaking to the prophet, I hear those words spoken over Jesus. And Jesus speaks them over you at the end of Matthew. It's a beautiful thing. So yeah, maybe he's Jeremiah. In fact, eschatology believed more writings around the first century that Jeremiah would come back, that he'd hidden some of the treasures before Babylonians came and took them out of the temple, that he would, and he hid them in Mount Nebo and covered up the mouth of the cave. And 
they believed that Jeremiah would come back and show them where those things were hidden. In fact, a dream there in 2 Maccabees is that, that Jeremiah actually brings a golden sword and gives it to Jerusalem. Why? To slay the Gentile enemies. Again, messianic expectation of the social discourse that's going around that the 12 disciples are saturated in. They can't help it. Maybe he's one of the prophets. He looks like a prophet. He's always doing something good for somebody. He's always telling us to repent. He's, he acts like, specifically like one of the 12 because justice is his primary issue at many times. So, so yeah, he looks like that. But what do the Pharisees say? Well, we get that in John 3. John 3, Nicodemus comes to him and says, look, we know that you've come from God as a teacher because no one could do the things you do unless they were from God. Nicodemus, press in and press on. You've, you've, you've got it close. He's come from God. He is God. Praise the Lord. Nicodemus sticks in, presses in and presses on to the identity. And we find that at the end of, of John's book, that, that he's there, pressing in and pressing on into Christ, being in Christ, being made a new creation. But they there, the Pharisees believe he's just a teacher. He, he's just, he's come from God. He says some good things. There, one of their writings, again from the first, around the first century, Messianic Expectations, comes from the Psalm of Solomon, chapter 17. After experiencing the nation's oppression by foreigners, they have this expectation of the Messiah. These are direct verses out of this psalm. See, Lord, See us and raise up for us a king, a son of David, to rule over Israel, your servant, in the time when you are ready. Undergird him with strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to cleanse Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample the streets, to drive out those unrighteous sinners Smash all their substance with iron rods. Destroy lawlessness of their words. Make the nations flee. This was the expectation. And we see that in the culture around Jesus as he's leading them to this place of false worship. And I believe when they get to the place... I think they've arrived at the grotto of pain. I see that at least in my, my mind's eye. I believe that. Because what he's going to say in Matthew about building something on a rock. I think it's the rock that he sees behind all these structures. And I think he sees the cave. And the cave was identified in ancient culture as the gates to Hades. The gates to hell. Where spirits and demons went back and forth. And Jesus, hearing these things that others say, ask the question on which life is to be anchored. Who do you say that I am? And looking at those false worshipers bringing food and flowers many oil lamps they would leave at these sites. 
trying to light the darkness of that place with oil lamps. The light of the world says, who do you say that I am? And this voice from the one of the 12 named Peter says, you are the Christ. Matthew will say he says, the son of the living God. Immediately, Jesus says, this hadn't been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but God has revealed this to you, Peter. In other words, you've got this right. I, I am the Messiah. I am he who has been sent. But what happens next? The commanding of secrecy because there must be something in their minds of their definition that isn't right, that Jesus doesn't want them going out. Here's the Messiah, and, and he's like all what we heard. He's going to rid us of, of the sinners in Jerusalem, and he's going he's to basically do things, judge those Gentiles, deliver Israel from their oppressors, and, and guess what the other synopsis would have been? To restore all the good fortunes. Hmm, Baal Gad. God of good fortunes. Restore all the fortunes back to the people of Israel. Make us autonomous again. Peter, you need to press in. Press on into me. So there'll be a rebuking. Because Jesus gives the truth about the Messiah. Once that news comes out, of Peter's lips. Oh, yes. And he's going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and be raised. That message in this section, past the hinge, is repeatedly stated with blunt force and repeatedly misunderstood because they're just seeing blurry. Jesus needs to get them to the cross. And I sit here and sometimes judge that. Oh, they don't get it. I wouldn't have got it. Most days I don't get it. I still look for good fortune. I still look for those gods that appease me, and make me feel secure. I take my little oil lamps place them in places in my life I think is dark when Jesus waits to shine and let me see clearly and I think man if I could tell somebody one thing from the gospel of Mark about his identity thus far at the hinge what would it be and it happens at the baptism at the baptism a voice from heaven speaks God speaks over his son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased because he's going to do my will. He's going to follow it to the cross. He's going to die for you. In that word, Mark records for us that God conflates, takes two different things and puts them together. A word from Psalm 2 that talks about the kingship 
of Jesus, that he is going to be king, but also brings in Isaiah 42.1, which starts the servant songs, the four servant songs. This is my chosen one. This is him. This is my servant in whom I'm well pleased. That's how 42.1 goes. And what does that mean? In the most basic of terms, Jordan Hyman nailed it this week when he sent all of us an email that asked us to serve somewhere in the church. He said, because remember, church, I wish I could use his voice. Jordan, it's beautiful. Remember, church, your king first served you. That's what they're missing here. That Jesus has come to serve them by going to the cross and dying for them. That Jesus is the king, but for the joy set before him will endure the cross. That what we see is summarized beautifully in just at the last servant song in just two verses, 53, 10 through 12 of Isaiah. The Lord was pleased, that means his will was done, was pleased to crush him, placing grief on him. If he would render himself a guilt offering, in other words, fully dispose of himself, which Jesus did. If he would render this, he would see his offspring in the future and good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand later for the joy set before him. As a result then of the anguish of his soul, the Messiah's soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, this righteous one, by that knowledge, my servant will justify the many. And he, he, the man standing looking at the most despicable place in the region, he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for all transgressors. That's the message they're missing that they can only get in Jerusalem, on Golgotha, at the cross that this Christ would come and suffer and die for them, that they might have life, that their life might be made new, that when he says in a moment to deny yourself and take up a cross, that's what it looks like to follow me. That doesn't mean, as I often do, oh, I'm just not going to have that next dessert. I'll deny myself. Or, oh, I'm just going to be patient with my neighbor because, boy, isn't he rough to deal with. No, it's about a new identity. It's about being made new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, all things being made new, that, yes, that old man is there, but we're going to crucify it every day. And as Paul says, I die daily to that flesh. And it is a hard walk. And from here, he's going to tell us that. But remember what Pastor Jeremy said last week. He will never leave you halfway. Nobody gets left behind that pushes in and presses on to him. In Christ I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed somehow to his death that I, as a disciple, might look like the Messiah, my Lord Jesus Christ. That's the offer when he says, Who do you say that I am? He anchors it all on a place 
where people are bringing their brokenness. They're coming to that worship site hoping that their lives that have been broken by this world might be fixed by good luck. Jesus says, on this rock, this 300-foot-long, 35-foot-tall gates of Hades there, I will form my church. And that gates of Hades will not be able to even come close to stopping it. And it all hinges on how you answer the question. Who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this moment in time that, that honestly changes the direction of history points us to the cross as Jesus resolutely sets his face to go there now. Starting at Caesarea Philippi, may we see those dark places in our life that, that, that need to be swept away by the presence of your son Jesus. We praise you that that is possible because he will not leave us behind. Lord, we praise you for this day of worship. In the name of Christ, amen. We have a visible, visible representation of who he is in the elements that we are about to partake in at this meal. Jesus leaves us this symbolic measure that we might know him as Messiah, but the full message of why he came is in the meal that you're about to partake as a believer. So let's pray together. There'll be stations left, right, and self-serve on the back two tables. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the mystery of faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. And that, Father, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples, and says, take and eat. For this is my body, which is broken for you. And when the meal was over, Jesus took a cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples, and said, Drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of a new covenant, which is poured out for you and for the many, for the forgiveness of sin. This is who I am. Lead us to this moment, Father, answering the question, who do you say that I am in Christ? Amen. Come when you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.